Welcome to the Leadership Mindset Podcast with me, Tony Brooks, where we look to revolutionize your leadership mindset by changing how you think and see your world, enabling you to do the right things and grow significantly as a leader. Welcome back to the Leadership Mindset Podcast Series, and I'm really, really pleased today to have with me Claudia Crawley. And um, Claudia and I worked together then right back beginning of 2009. I bet you can't believe it's that long, Claudia. Claudia was, in, <laughs> Claudia was in fact, my fourth ever client, and we've kept in touch over the years since working together. And uh, we met for coffee recently because Claudia's now moved into Leicestershire she was down in London before so it was really great to catch up and then I thought wouldn't it be brilliant to have Claudia on the on the podcast series now Claudia for people who don't know her her background she's an executive and career coach specialized in working with women in the social working area managers and practitioners uh, also specialized in working with black and Asian women in the challenges that they face in the workplace and also provides training in race fluency and anti-racism. And so we're going to be focusing a lot on discrimination and racism in in the workplace uh, today, uh, which I I think is a really important topic. And I know that Claudia is going to have some really illuminating and interesting insights to share with with us all, really, wherever, whatever background that we come from, because it's a collective problem that we should all be um, taking responsibility for and and working on together. So wonderful to have you with us today, Claudia. Yeah, thanks, Tony. And thanks for inviting me. Good. Oh, great. Well, let's get let's go straight into a first question then. What's um, led you to work? Oh, the other thing I was going to mention really quickly, actually, is um, Claudia is an author and she's recently put out a book called Undeterred. The sex yeah, I can't ex- forget the book. Yeah, The Success Equation of Women of Black and Asian Heritage. And it's uh, 10 really interesting interviews that Claudia did with people from all sorts of backgrounds and experiences. Uh, and I've been having a read through that and um, I've got I've got a few points as we go through that, because that is a, a really interesting read. And I know in there, one of the things you talk about a lot is purpose and passion for what you yeah. do and the people that you interview talk about that. So, yeah, what's led you to work uh, in the areas that you work in? And I guess specifically for today to uh, look at racism in organ- organisations and why do you feel that's so important, Claudia? OK, uh, that's a great question because it's uh, it's one about, it's the process of evolution which started when I was a child actually because I was brought up in a home where racism was a taboo topic, would you believe it? My dad absolutely refused to talk about it and I mean I've looked back on this lot you know, over the years, lots of times. And um, I think that he found it too painful. He was one of the Windrush generation people who had a really hard time when they first came here. So I, I suspect that's why he didn't want to talk about it. So what that meant was that I didn't get an understanding of why I felt uncomfortable when people did things like touching my hair uninvited or, you know, when I was you know, with with friends who were making racist jokes and I was expected to laugh. I never really understood why I felt the way I did. Um, But the other thing is, I I also attended a school where I and my brother and sister were the only black children. This was a primary school for a while. And I remember one of my teachers, um, she used to tell all the kids to stand on their chairs and uh, like, you know, once a week or so. And she'd come around and she'd examine their necks and she'd 
they whether they needed to wash them. And every time she came to me, she said, well, you can sit down because you can't tell whether you're dirty or not, you know. And all the kids would laugh. And I w- I've always felt I was expected to laugh along with them. And yeah. I never really un- never understood any of that. And then fast forward how many years, I'm a youngster in the probation service, a rookie. I'm on my first race awareness course. And it was like someone um, took these blindfolds off my eyes and everything started to make sense. Yeah. I, I understood why I felt the way I felt. Um, I just I just began to see everything really clearly. And it was after that that I started to get involved in the anti-racism movement. So I've been involved in it for about 25 years. And... Um, I took. I had to take a break at one point because I was doing lots of anti-racism training within the probation service, and I took a break because uh, I was experiencing a lot of um, gaslighting, being blamed for things, and it wasn't doing my mental health any good. So I, I took time out for a few years, and then George Floyd happened, and that was that got me right back in. I felt that you know, I couldn't stay on the sidelines any longer. I really had to be out there and get active and re-involved in the struggle. Yeah. Um, sorry. No, I can, I, I can, I mean, as a black, uh, sorry, uh, for a black woman, uh, I mean, as a white man, I can only attempt to empathise with, with your journey and try and understand that. Obviously, I can never understand fully that the kind of experiences you must have gone through just from a, a very young age and and also there's i think it came out um in one or two of the stories in in your book with the with the 10 women that you interviewed that's i guess there's that balance but you, it was really fascinating when you were talking about your father and almost um too painful so don't talk about it and it was almost in in the book at time your book at times so there was that difference between either confronting and challenging things or in a way almost accepting things because i guess the battle's too tough to wage and whatever and and you you, you and that's what i was doing yeah yeah preserving yeah. your own mental health um by stepping back for a while um totally understandable i imagine really so in terms of it's important tony it, it's it's simple really it's unfair and it's unjust but the life chances of black and brown people are being limited by racial injustice and discrimination. It's just not fair. So, you know, I'll give you some figures to back that up. You know, did you know that of the 23,000 university professors in the UK, only 155 are black and they are paid 26% less than their white counterparts? Not many people know that. No, I must admit that's that's new yeah. data for me, but that, and that's shocking, really. And and also, um, according to research conducted by the TUC, they found that fifty two percent of Black and Asian disabled women workers say they have been unfairly denied access to training and development opportunities. Now, I mean, I could go on. Yeah, I could, no. I could roll out the figures. You know, and they're, they're all there for people who care to to go online and have a look at them. And then okay. the other one I, I told you about recently, which is about black maternal health, that we're four times more likely than our white counterparts to die when we're um, pregnant, during childbirth or afterwards. Now, yeah. 
really shocking. That that you were sharing that with me before we started the um, the episode, not and, and that were that was shocking. And we were talking about, um, and I'd seen this on the news recently. Recently, and one of the women in your book, um, I mm-hmm. think it was Michelle, was talking about the perception of black women in particular as being tough uh, mm-hmm. and almost uh, as you, uh, you know to the point where that becomes really detrimental and um and that and that example you were talking about about mortality rate during childbirth and what have you you said was re- directly related to that perception that both white and black people have about uh, black women being um you know having a level of t- toughness over and above the norm i guess yeah, there is that, and and it does. It we've we've bought into a lot of this stuff because that's how we've been educated. We haven't been, and if you if you're brought up in a home like I was, where we weren't allowed to talk about it, and, and nobody ever said don't talk. Well, actually, my dad did. He did say that. Okay. But you know, um, it, when you're brought up like that, and and you're presented with these things as facts, we take them on board as well. We think they must be true. And it's only when you go through an experience like I did and you, you take the blindfold off that you begin, begin to you begin to examine things and, you know, and ask why and what and where and when and all of that. That's when you start to see, actually, this isn't true. I, I hurt as much as any other person. You yeah. know, I'm no more tough than any other. Than, and if I continue to m- maintain that myth, that I am tough. It's got, it's got consequences for me. Yeah, yeah, to- totally respect that. And, and you said it was the race awareness training that you did, wasn't it, that sort of opened your eyes, really? Yeah, um, yeah. Because I guess very much, we're all very much influenced by our parents, aren't we, in our parenting. And your world was one where, I guess, it was almost knuckle down and don't talk about it and, yeah. and, and accept things and get on with it. Um, but that trigger point for you and I guess we all have trigger points on our journeys don't we Claudia but that was a really important one and then the George Floyd um, incident was a was a big trigger for you as well and and actually I must admit for me as a, as a white man that was um, really impactful and I, I strongly align with the Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, and, and I know that can be a, a contentious but I strongly align with that and um, and that's been a big debate in the white community i think that sort of black lives matter versus all lives matter positioning yeah. uh, I, I think again there, um, i'm going to mention him a couple of times because you know I, I really like him but chuck d who's sort of leader of public enemy rapper i love i think he's a, a deeply intelligent wise man i love following his stuff and um there was a quote around about the time of black lives matter that he put out which was about privilege. And what he said was, if I just dig this out now, he said privilege is when you think something is not a problem because it's not a problem to you personally. And I think a lot of white men in particular can sit in a place of privilege and not have the experiences that somebody like you have been through throughout your life, Claudia, um, and not really appreciate that they're in a privileged position because they don't experience uh, the damage caused by, um, you know, living a different life. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I'm totally, as I say, I I can only attempt to relate, but I'm, I'm, I I totally understand why you would feel so passionately about it. And and actually, so, so do I in my own world as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you, 
what do you think we're, we're touching on the george floyd issue and black lives matter and some of those uh, issues do you think problems around racism are increasing or diminishing particularly over the latter few years what what are your views on that claudia okay i i'm in two minds about that one actually uh, and I'm in two minds for the following reason. Because people are talking about racism and anti-racism so much more since George Floyd's death, yeah? And if you switch on the TV, you'll see a lot more black people and Asian people than ever. We're in, uh, we're fronting uh, the news. We're, uh, we're in a lot of adverts. We're taking lead roles in TV dramas. And, and there are more of us in Parliament. But despite all of that, there's a backlash. There is a backlash. And a lot of this is coming from government as well. So, for example, um, you know, there are MPs who have been openly critical about wokeness. Now, put that in inverted commas. And they scoff at people who are aware of race, racial injustice and social injustice generally, which is what wokeness is and are openly critical, sorry, they're, they're aware of it and they're doing what they can to tackle it. And the government um, commissioned a report by from the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparity, which was led by Tony Sewell, I think it was last year, wasn't it, or this year, I can't remember. And what that report said, the main conclusion was that they had found no evidence of institutional racism. And that's despite there being evidence to the contrary all around us, evidence that yeah, we've yeah. been communicating for years, and that was their finding. So, you know, and just to give some more figures, there are no, at this moment, there are no black leaders of FTSE 100 companies. What's that about? Yeah. No. We're also 9.6 times more likely to be stopped in search. And we're three times more likely to be det detained involuntarily under the Men Mental Health Act. Yeah, you know? no, it's, good, it's good to hear you sharing the hard data because I think we, I think instinctively we know some of this, but it's interesting to hear that. And yeah. you started to, I was going to ask you, Claudia, about, I, th I thought it was interesting what you said there about George Floyd, the, the whole George Floyd incident being in certain respects a trigger for good with the media representation of black people news uh tv drama films all of those kind of things but then you've got the flip side that there is still um such a, an enormous problem within organizations and um do you see that in your work in in the in the well I, as you say you're working very much in social working industry but yeah. in nhs and universities i know and i do yeah, but, and you're still seeing that very strongly in organisations. I it all the time. And that's one of the reasons why I'm working in with Black and Asian um, women specifically. You know, because they've got, what what they've got is the intersection of uh, of race and gender. Yeah. And and all the um, the oppression that, that comes with them, the challenges that come with them. And it's still very much there. I know when I started to do it after George Floyd, because it was, you know, getting back into the social work world, and I was really quite shocked that not a lot seemed to have changed. Yeah, okay. The, the generation, what are they? Youngsters, <laughs> 20s, 30s, you know, um, 
who were encountering what people of my generation had encountered years ago and probably are still encountering in yeah. social work. So it was quite a shock, yeah. And, and hugely disappointing as well, isn't it, really? Yeah, very much so. So when you when you were talking about, um, uh, if we talk specifically about organisations for a moment, businesses, organisations, I know you work a lot in the in sort of public sector. Yeah. When you mentioned that example of there being no black FTSE leaders, um, what are the ways do you see racism, discrimination manifesting in organisations in the workplace then, Claudia? What, what's the reality of that? There's a variety of ways, actually, how uh, that's manifested. Um but you get uh, the daily microaggressions. And what I mean by microaggressions is like the the casual and the, the subtle comments, the slights and the behaviours, which people might, they enact, but they, and they don't intend any malice. But nevertheless, um, they're typically harmful. Yeah, yeah. When it, in terms of the impact it has on us. And you get those daily stuff, you know, it, it can be overwhelming and, and, um, energy sapping. And I'll give you some examples of microaggression. People asking you where you're from and you say London and they say, no, where are you really from? Okay. So what the message here is, you're not from this country. Yeah, you're yeah. an other. You don't belong here. Yeah. Another comment. You are so articulate, or she's a black woman, but she's so articulate. Again, what's that telling you? You're not supposed to be intelligent, you know, you're not supposed to be good at talking. That's just totally disrespectful as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, that kind of stuff we hear a lot daily. Yeah, no, I was, um, in your book, you, you talked about the term microaggressions a lot, and I think it's good to talk yeah. a couple of examples. I don't know about you, we'll, we'll come to it later on probably more detail but i think as um white people white men in organizations leaders of organizations i think a lot of it probably is about raising consciousness about how destructive even small things uh what are perceived as small things like that can be alongside the more institutionalized bigger problems as you call them microaggressions they still have so much impact over time and yeah. And they're micro because they're little, but the impact is great. Big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's big. And I think that the more people are conscious of what they're saying and how they're behaving, then they can they can attempt to change that. Because some people will be doing that from a place of malice, which is uh, which is incredibly uh, unacceptable. Mm-hmm. But some people will, even though it's wrong, probably won't fully realise what they're doing and the damage caused yeah. and i'm i'm hoping that people listening to this today in fact for for all of us i mean me included i think raising our awareness and our consciousness of the experience of other people like you talked about we could debate a whole episode on wokeness i have a lot of um mm-hmm. i've had a lot of interesting debates about the word woke over the years but as you say i think in a way it's it's about being sensitive to social injustice isn't it absolutely yeah and, and, I, and I think, sorry, sorry. I think one of the things about microaggression is that people often intend, they're coming from places of good intention. So, for example, someone who wants to touch my hair, you know, it's it because it, it looks, maybe it looks attractive, I don't know, but uh, basically you're invading my space. And you oh, yeah. if I were the white person, would you be asking that question or would you even be doing it without yeah. my 
without my permission because that does happen people yeah. think they can just come and touch your hair <laughs> yeah well I've, I've got none left for them to touch so i'm <laughs> 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 they, can, they can polish the the top of my head but that's about it really yeah. but yeah no I've, i think that's that concept of microaggressions is, is a really good one because i think there is so much to be done with inst- institutionalized racism in organizations but yeah. we can all go away from a conversation a podcast episode like this and think about what we're doing on a moment to moment day by day basis and just yeah. be more aware of that can't we so i think that's good can um, i throw something else in here tony about what's going on in organizations absolutely. i don't think i don't think we, we should forget um the unfair from um you know when people black and asian people go for promotion then they don't get it and not because they're they're incompetent or they're not as good, but their colour will play a part in keeping them out of those um, managerial stroke leadership positions. And and also, the, the I don't know if you've heard of hair discrimination, where black women have been told that they're to go to work with their hair in its natural form, like mine, is unprofessional. Wow. And it can actually work against them. It can, and we see this in schools. There's, there's something going on at the moment in, I think it's in Parliament where they're trying to get rid of hair discrimination in schools. That's amazing. And it was interesting because when I, when I was reading your book, one of the women, her mm-hmm. name escapes me, that she was talking about being discriminated against for wearing a, uh, I think it was like a pencil s- skirt and, and, and a white woman yeah. was wearing exactly the same skirt. Yeah. Um, and it was her female boss as well who picked her up on it. And mm. she said it was because I was curvier in the size of my bum in the, in the skirt that it was picked on with, uh, picked up with me that it was inappropriate to wear, even though somebody else who was slimmer, uh, yeah. a woman who's slimmer build wasn't picked up, uh, for, for wearing the skirt. And I thought that was incredibly, um, again, it's just one of those examples I wouldn't even probably think of about what kind of things are, uh, you know, a black woman or a black person has to experience that you, yeah. you uh, as a white person, you probably wouldn't even imagine yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. And, and I've never heard the term hair discrimination. So yeah. that's, uh, that's what, amazing. What it means is that you can't go to work as yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be somebody else in order to get on in the workplace. Yeah. Well, it'd be like me being pushed to wear a wig, wouldn't it? To go yeah. to work or something. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, okay. And, what, and when we're talking about some of the ways that uh, racism manifests in organisations and, and the problems that cause, how do you think, you, you spoke about the intersection of race and gender, but yeah. how do you think that the problems are emphasised for black women over and above, um, I guess, a black man or, or, or yeah. a, a woman in organisations? Being a black woman, how do you think that those are emphasised then? Okay. Well, I mean, being a woman in the workplace tends on the whole to be a lot more difficult um, purely because of gender expectations and, and uh, sexism and all of that um, but when you in relation to black and Asian women um, there's things for us the, the, the gender issue obviously but there's also things like the gender pay gap you know the, 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 it's greater for black women there's also this the subtle the microaggressions I've just talked about, there's things like 
mis mispronouncing our names, mixing us up with other people who we don't look like at all, and all the stereotypes of us as angry black women, and 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 also expecting us to represent our whole race and to talk for our whole race. Yeah, yeah. And then in in addition to all of that, there's um what I call the concrete ceiling that we experience, which keeps us keeps us down, keeps us out of um, leadership positions. And, and that's about us being surrounded by a system where prejudice and discrimination arrive, and one that maintains inequality and it impedes our career progression. Um, what else can I say? The, the research from yeah, a think yeah. tank called Coqual uh, indicated that 52% of black professional women in the UK have the intention to leave their jobs soon, and that compared to 34% of their white counterparts. Okay. So the, those figures just tell you the pressure that we're under, yeah? Yeah, and that's... That we're, we're not going to... A lot of us are not... Most of us are not going to stick with it. Yeah, blimey. Okay. Yeah, no, again, thank you for sharing stats on that. And I get, I guess that concrete ceiling you spoke about can be, obviously, there's, there's two things that can be going on there because that can be imposed by organisations, the way that um, black women are treated, if we're talking specifically about black women here. But I yeah. guess there's the whole internal challenge going on about whether you actually step up and put yourself um you know, in, into the cooking pot of, of taking those small senior positions on, attempting to go for those senior positions, because there will be that uh, element of doubt within about how you're going to be treated through the process and when you get into the position yeah. And, yeah. and all of those kind of things as well. So that, that concrete ceiling can operate in two ways. Yeah. I, I think that's right. And in addition to that, if you, if you lack the confidence to put yourself forward and you're not getting the support or the encouragement yeah. which is what often happens with black and Asian women, then that just makes it even more difficult to yeah. go through it. Yeah. What would you say? I, I mean, I hear um, white, I have my own views on this, but I hear uh, white people sometimes talk about um, a, a black individual who may have made it into a, a CEO position or, you know, or, or whatever. And they say, see, it's not a problem. Um, if people actually don't get hung up about, um, their color or whatever, they can, uh, they can achieve just as, uh, as well as a white person. And there's that opportunity to do it. And, and then you might get that. That's when the whole woke debate comes in. What are your thoughts on that? When, when that, when those kind of isolated examples are used of, uh, maybe black people, black women who've have stepped up into um, senior positions, and that so it's it's almost like it's a an indication that there isn't really a problem. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's an interesting one, isn't it? But you have to look at what happened when they're in that position. Um, and I mean my experience, I've never been at. Uh, I've never been a CEO at the top of a, an organisation other than my own, the one I'm in. <laughs> <at the time>. <laughs> <laughs> but what I know, my experience of women I know who have been in that position is that they often get, it's like they're put on a pedestal and they get knocked down. Yeah. So <clears throat> they, 
they get um they're called they get charged with bullying behavior um they're often accused of i don't know doing something that's going to bring the organization into disrepute and it's happened too many times for me to think that this is true this is 100 percent true all the time and some of these women they're there they, they haven't made their race a, um, an issue they haven't so I, I i just think that we have to be careful with that one it doesn't mean that we're things have changed or that um the organization is functioning well in relation to to anti-racism or uh, equality diversity and inclusion what it means is that they've made an appointment and time will tell what happens yeah. with that person yeah and i guess it, it brings in what you were saying earlier about no black heads of FTSE organizations but also uh, again, an, an interesting theme in your book, which we were talking about earlier before we started the podcast episode, is that um, view uh, of, of many people in your book that um, the the black person or the black woman's journey from particular can be 10 times harder um, than normal uh, because there's more to battle against. So even if you've got a person who's going to a CEO position yeah. and it, let's say it's a black woman, their journey to get there has probably been incredibly uh, tougher uh, um, than would have been for the white man, for example, face to have more challenges. I think also um, when you get a white person in a, at the top of an organisation, white man in particular, people are more forgiving. They'll give them a lot more chances. They, they yeah. can make a mistake. They'll give them a lot more chances. Look at Boris Johnson, for example. Oh, my goodness, how much, how many mistakes has he made? And That's yeah. interesting. Liz, Liz trusted enough to make much was a big no. one. She? <laughs> well, I mean, her mistake was huge. It was huge. It was huge. It was. And I mean, Kwasi Kwarteng, would he have been thrown on? I mean, he's a black man, obviously. Yeah, would he have yeah. been thrown under the bus in that way if he'd been a white man? Would That's he have been given more, more of a chance yeah. no, to come back is... from it? That is, you know, really and I, I think we have to remember that that when you're a woman, if there are double standards at play. Really, men can get away; white men can get away with a lot more than women. Yeah, and yeah. black women get away with a lot less. Yeah, and you in your book, um, and I know this is a big philosophy for you. Anyway, you've got a success equation of black and Asian women, um, which is. Uh, and I'm an ex-mathematician, so I always like a good equation. <laughs> D plus R squared plus P. And that's the success equation. So for people listening, that is determination plus resilience and resistance uh, plus purpose. Uh, yeah. are the other real other four key elements to that. Yeah. And I guess we've been touching on determination we've touched on purpose as well in terms of passion and i guess that big why we'll make we'll come back to that maybe in a moment yeah. um the resistance pete if i understood it correctly was uh about uh, like you said actually i guess it's um not accepting things that are wrong uh and resisting yes. putting up some resistance to those understand really Pardon? Understand. not not yeah. lying down and allowing people to walk all over you 
you know. And I think Marsha in the book is a great example. Actually, all of them were in one way or another. But, you know, Marsha really took a stand on that. Um, when she the, she the woman who was wearing, told off for wearing the skirt. Yeah, Marsha Powell, wasn't it? Yeah, the, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> took a stand and and um as did Vanessa who was a, a newsreader. Yeah. She she took she took the um the racism that she was experiencing, she took it upward. They didn't do a lot about it, but at least she didn't um just allow it to happen. Yeah, she worked yeah. in Granada, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading about her as well. But did you want to add anything else about I mean, I guess um did you want to add anything else about that success equation and that determination plus resilience, resistance and purpose? Or did you want to add anything else to that? Well, I've discovered since writing a book, I've discovered uh, the another R, the third R. <laughs> OK, so it's R cubed <laughs> now. It's, it's called reinvention. OK. Basically, when you uh, look at all of these women, you'll see that none of them gain success from staying where they started. Yeah? Yeah. They all had to reinvent themselves in one way or another to gain success. Okay. So even um Razia, the Muslim woman, yeah. she with her background with finance, where did she find success? It wasn't in her career. It was in um doing being active within the community. Yeah and fighting for affordable housing. And she went in as a Muslim woman wearing a hijab and found herself sharing, sharing that particular organisation. Um, you know, I mean, that's the real reinvention. So, you, yeah, that, that's what, that, the, the third R that I found. Okay, so we're going to have an adaption to the success equation going forward. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We we talked talked a little bit earlier about um, where well, you talked about George Floyd. What are your thoughts? Your, what are your thoughts and feelings around the Black Lives uh, Matter movement, then, Claudia? What, what do you feel about that? Okay, um, I'm very pro Black Lives Matter, and don't get me wrong. I know it's got. Uh, a bit of a bad name at the moment, but I, I reckon a lot of that is to do with the backlash. Um, people have said it's been taken over by lefties. Okay, yeah. They've said it's um, anti-white, which it isn't. Yeah. Um, I think the Black Lives Matter movement, it, it, unfortunately, if they'd put Black Lives Matter 2 at the end, I think it probably would have gone down a lot better. But still, it doesn't mean that because you're pro-Black Lives Matter that you're anti-white, that you yeah. think that white lives don't matter as well. All it means is that there are particular circumstances which make it much harder for us as black people to, to function at our best and to get on in life. So I, I'm a supporter of the Black Lives Matter, and I don't believe a lot of um, the hype about it because this is what happens when you get a, a a movement like this, which is incredibly has been incredibly successful, mobilising people right around the world. Then the haters come on and attack it, and I think that's what's happened. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm definitely a supporter of it, and I think that yeah. um, we can always talk about 
various organisations. I mean, look at political parties. You've got all sorts of characters in political parties and you, you can talk about people who maybe are taking political parties down different paths than they might go down and what have you. But in principle, for me, um, I mean, you, you said about the black thing, maybe having it as Black Lives Matter too. But for me, it's about that valuing black lives um, I, I, and, and whether as white, particularly as white people, in certain situations, black lives may be valued less. Uh, whether it's the George Floyd incident or whether it's somebody talking about their problems of discrimination in a workplace or whatever else. It's actually, I think for me, it's about valuing black people's input and their lives and, and getting a better understanding of uh, how their journey might be more difficult, challenging. So as a white person, again, I go back to my point right at the beginning, that you work, we work more collectively to mm-hmm. do to do something about that. So um yeah i i i i'm i'm a great supporter of it and i wanted to sorry Chloe, i just wanted to go off onto another point that seems really a good one to relate to at this moment i had a, a white male friend speak to me recently actually and he said to me when when uh, when we as white people see people of color he said should we be seeing people of color um or should we not be seeing that and i thought what an amazing colorblind approach aren't you yeah, what an amazing question. And what I shared with him, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a Chuck D quote again, because that's it's what I said to him, actually. I, I've got um, I dug out another quote from Chuck D on this, and I thought, again, it was uh, fascinating. Yeah. He said, um, I see no colour is not the goal. I see your colour and I honour you. I value your input. I will be educated about your lived experiences. I will work against the racism that harms you. You're a beautiful and I will do better. That's yeah. the goal. And, and do you know what, Claudia? Uh, I've attempted to live my life like that for many years and that's how yeah. I'll attempt to live it. And I just wonder what your thoughts were on whether that's wrong to see colour or, or what your thoughts are really. I'm with Chuck D. <laughs> Good. Thousand percent. You have to see my colour. I mean, let's face it, if you're saying you can't see my colour, then you're lying. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have to be as blunt as this because you do see my colour. There is no way I can walk into a room and you can, you see me as anything else that, uh, other than a black woman. Yeah. I'm a black woman. I have particular experiences which come with that. They affect how I show up in the world. They affect how I show up in the workplace. My colour is subjected to negative stereotypes. It's subjected. I'm oppressed because of it. I have a particular life experience because of it. If you overlook my colour, you're not seeing me for who I am. You're overlooking my identity and you're overlooking all of that experience. So how can you actually value me and everything I stand for? if you're not seeing me for who I am. Now, I'll give you an example. A bit like seeing a wheelchair user and and saying you don't see their wheelchair. What does that mean? It means you're not going to give them access to your organisation. It means they're not going to be able to lose the public loose because either they can't get in or when they get in there, the facilities are not suitable. You have to to take people... Just see them for who they are, because when you do, you can start relating to me. You can start relating to me for who I am. You can start doing what you can to be on my side. Yeah, You can't do that if you don't see my colour. 
Yeah, I love that. And I think it's at the, the heart of empathy, isn't it? Um, I've got a black friend and he was uh, saying to me recently that um, he was uh, carrying his son's bike back from uh, nursery or whatever you. And he said a white person would never understand that when a police car goes past, I wonder if I'm going to be uh, stopped to see if I've stolen that bike as yes. a black man. And um and I guess that put absolutely, yeah. So for for me, I I I love the way you described it. I thought um, you you crystallised that for for me and and hopefully other people as well. Let's um let's end with just a couple of questions around um what well we, let's look to the future a little bit, Claudia. Mm-hmm. Really, what do you think that an enlightened organisation, an enlightened business? can do to counter racism and and sexism and all of the other uh, prejudice and discriminations that go on the workplace. Let's focus, let's focus particularly on racism though. What do you think um, enlightened organisations can do to counter that more going forwards? Okay. Well, the first thing is that we need leadership from the very top. You can get your EDI consultants in, um, your EDI managers in, But if the person at the top isn't leading on this, then you're not going to get very far. Yeah. And leaders should be supporting their black and Asian staff. And the best way to do this is, and this is what great leaders do, actually, is to ensure that the organisation is anti-racist, that it is really inclusive. Inclusion is not just a word, in other words. It's... um, it's something that you're actively doing. Yep. And that it has an anti-racism policy with an action plan <clears throat> that's not just there on paper, but is actually being implemented and is being monitored. And when change isn't happening, you're actually looking at why and you're taking action to put things right. And one of the things we have to remember is that... Um, Racism is, I call it a stubborn little devil, because <laughs> it is. It's been around for how many hundred years? And just when you think you've got a handle on it, something happens, and you realise that it's still lurking, it's still in the shadow. It's hidden in the shadow, but it's in plain sight of you. So overcoming racism in the workplace, it requires energy, it requires commitment, and it requires staying power. It's not for organisations to give up because they're finding it too tough and slow, because it is, it is not going to be quick. But I say, it's been around for hundreds of years. Yeah. And I the, guess, other thing, the, the other thing is that talking about it, racism and anti-racism need to be normalised as a topic of conversation. Because when you do that, you take the, the, the taboo out of it. And people will then feel free to express themselves and talk about it without fear, without fear of being shut down or gaslighted or frowned on. And black and Asian people will, they can be themselves. They can actually engage in the conversation. Um, and the other thing that enlightened organisations should do is that leaders should create a collective of allies. And what I mean here are anti-racist leaders at all levels of the organisation to actually lead alongside them. And that would include not just the white people in the workplace, but the black and Asian leaders as well. 
But there's um, just a few things that can be done. Yeah, and some brilliant pointers there, Claudia. And um, I know we'll, we'll give you information in a moment because I think if if organisations are out there that want to look at EDI and want to look at um, some of those areas so that they can make changes themselves and take responsibility for this, then I know you'd be happy to have a talk with people. But it was almost it's interesting. We almost went full circle there because um, you were talking about when you were a child with your dad, racism almost being yeah. a taboo topic and not being yeah. talked about. And as you said, uh, one of the biggest things is to normalise it and make it part of conversation and actually um, not put it, I guess, not not brush it under the carpet, but actually bring it to the fore as a topic mm-hmm. and, yeah. um, and, and deal with it and have conversations about it and deal with the challenges. Um, so it was, it was great to hear you almost go yeah. completely full circle with that. There's the, the the quote from I can't remember the exact wording, so I'll just summarise it as I can remember it. It's a quote which I came across in a book called The Business of Race. Now I can't remember the authors. One is called um Greenberg and the other one is Green something, but I can't quite remember her name. Sorry for that. Okay. Um but what they said was it it was akin to you can't fix what you don't talk about yeah that's that's the gist of it but that kind of sums it up for me if you cannot talk about it how can you fix it yes yeah, true and that's why it needs to be normalized we need to take the fear and the loathing out of this topic yeah and, and i think it's awareness isn't it claudia i mean you've shared so many interesting stories and data and your book was fascinating when i read through that as well that I think um, for all of us and, uh, and for a, a white man as I am and white men listening to this, white women, or whatever, whatever your background, I think we can all do more to become more aware of what, yeah. it, what the reality of it is. Because as you say, I think the danger is too quickly people get into comments about political correctness and wokeness. But it's more about having conversations about what is the reality and understanding other people's reality, as you say, seeing your colour, seeing you as a woman and then wanting to understand more what your what your journey has been and what your journey is still like now and the, and the challenges you face. Because if we don't do that, then we're all putting our head in the sands, aren't we? Claudia? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah fabulous all right then before we finish thank first of all thank you so much i uh, i think it's such an important topic to talk about as you say yeah. and that was one of the reasons when we met for coffee i thought I'd, I'd just love to get claudia on and talk about it because i think it's such an important um stubborn little devil as you called it stubborn <laughs> devil anyway stubborn devil for sure. <laughs> um where can people uh if people want to connect with you find out more inquire about what you do where can they where's the best place to go to find out more about claudia you can find me on my website, which is www.winningpathwayscoaching.com. Yeah. And and I'm on um, LinkedIn. You can find me there. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so it shouldn't be hard to find. Um, so, yeah. That's the two best places. You contact me through those means. Yeah. No, fabulous, Claudia. Well, I know you've got a really busy day ahead. I know you've already had two conversations and another couple to come. So I'm going to let you go and um, get your lunch and have a coffee. Uh, Thank you hugely um, for, well, it's been great to keep in touch over these years. So thank you hugely, first of all, for picking me as your coach all those years. 13, nearly 14 years ago now. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, it's been brilliant to watch your journey and the successes you've achieved and the books and all of those things as well, Claudia. So, yeah, thank you, Tony. And just remember, I wouldn't be where I am without you. Oh, well, bless you. That's <laughs> a very important part in getting me here. So just remember that. Oh, well, thank you very much. Anyway, but thank you hugely for being on the programme today. And thank you. Uh, let's, let's keep into it. If you want to explore your leadership mindset in more detail, why not complete our free leadership diagnostic at thetonybrooks.com and subscribe to this podcast to join us for future podcasts.